verse 8 of Romans chapter 13. And it was talked about the fact where the Bible says to owe no man anything. And I, I talked to you about the practicality of that verse. We, we looked at the fact that Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 tells us that we have a race to run. And in essence, to break it all down, to make it simple for those of you that maybe were not here last week or just to put it in another context, all of the th- issues that we have in life that we cause are through bad choices or bad decisions. And you remember, I, I, I constantly remind you this, <clears throat> and it's true in all of our lives, that life is choices. And the, the things that we have to struggle with in life and go through in life uh, many times are based on the bad choices that we make. And that doesn't mean that there's not a way out from under it. There always is. The Bible is very clear on that aspect. But it comes back to the point where uh, we have to understand how the principle applies that, uh, uh, through our decisions. And I talked about how that we have a race to run. And that race uh, were to stay focused on the prize that God has for us, and the prize being the judgment seat of Christ. And yet the things that we put in our world, the things that are made of bad choices or bad consequences, they add weight to our, to our run. And we, we talked about several examples of that. And uh, I must say that, you know, uh, the, the response last week was quite overwhelming. I appreciate so many of you that, that uh, have come in and talked with me or called me on the phone uh, that uh, really the message really struck right where you were at and maybe what you're dealing with in your life. You know, I, I came away with this last week in one respect anyhow, uh, uh, so amazed with the fact that so many of you desire to do what's right with your life. And I, I think that's one of the things that I, I really love about you, so many of you, is that uh, you, really, you really want to do what's right with your life. The, the uniqueness of our church, and I think this is really a quality that uh, I don't say much about, but I think it's a true quality is that almost all of you, for the most part, at least 85% of you, are people who have just gotten saved or people who never really, uh, you know, you, you haven't got into the system yet, so to speak. You haven't been taught how to be a professional uh, Christian. You just simply love God. You want to do what's right in your life with your families. Maybe you don't know how, but you're willing to learn. And, boy, I'll tell you what, you don't, you don't find anything better than that. I, I can give people all of the lesson plans, all of the books of the Bible, like I spend 6,000 hours teaching you the principles of the Bible. But if you don't have the attitude of heart to receive what the Word of God is coming, then it's really a waste of time on my part. And one of the things that I, I love about you is the fact that uh, there's so many of you who desire to do what's right with your life, and it's evident in, you know, in the things that you do. And I, you know, it, it struck me this week as after I preached that sermon. It really wasn't a hard sermon, but it was a sermon that dealt with reality of life, and many times, you know, we don't want to deal with the reality. Remember, I gave you two great verses, two great principles. Philippians 4.19 talked about and focused on our needs. My God shall supply all of your need and not the wants. And then 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, which talked about the fact that we need to be content uh, with the things that we have, that godliness and contentment is great gain, the Bible says. Now, today... Last week, we looked at the aspect of debt, and we'll continue on that in Romans chapter 13, but I want to look at it from another aspect, and it's really the context of this passage here, uh, even though uh, it's a, you know, it carries both, both subjects. But I want to read here in Romans chapter 13, and let's pick it up in verse 8 together, and then we'll go on from there. It says, Owe no man anything but to love one another, 
For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in, in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And Lord, um, I, I, I just stand in awe sometimes how your spirit uh, puts the things in our lives and in our hearts uh, at the time that we need them. And there's, Lord, where our church is at right now, I can't think of a better place to be than right here in chapter 13, coming down to the end, uh, then moving into chapter 14 and chapter 15, which deals with our relationship with each other as Christians. And Lord, I thank you for the fact that we can come to your word today. Lord, we love you. We thank you, Father, for all that you've done for us and all that you've given us. And we ask you, Lord, now to open up our hearts to give us, uh, Lord, exactly what we need today. And we'll be thankful to give you all the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. You remember that I've reminded you all through our study on the book of Romans that the book of Romans is a book about perspective. It gives us our perspective in almost everything in our life that we need to know about our relationship with uh, everything as a Christian. And when we get to Romans chapter 14 and 15, and I told you this the other day, when we get to chapter 14 and 15, uh, and I think this is just of God uh, for where our church is at, chapter 14 and chapter 15 of Romans really talks about the ability to minister to each other. And, uh, you know, it's the final two chapters in the book of Romans. And uh, he leaves the book of Romans. Uh, uh, he's went through every aspect. In chapter 1, he went through our perspective of the Gentiles. In chapter 2, he went through our perspective of uh, the Jews. In chapter 3 and 4, our perspective of the law and how it all f- deals with it. Chapter 5 and 6, we got into the uh, death of Christ on the cross and how it relates, re- relates to you and I and our walk with God. And now finally we come to, in chapter 12 was, uh, uh, you know, our relationship with other people. 13, our government. And now we come into 14 and 15 here in the next couple of weeks. And uh, now he ends the book with probably the single greatest concept that we always need to keep before us. And that is the aspect of our relationship to each other. I think that, like I said, it's very profitable for where we're at uh, in this particular time. Chapter 13 uh, through 8 through 14 not only brings chapter 13 to a close in dealing with government authority and accountability to it, but what it also does in these passages, it forms a bridge. It kind of brings us from a transition coming from the, from, the, uh, from the chapter 13 with the government going into chapter 14 and chapter 15. And last week we talked about the fact that we get so caught up with owing money to the world and our debt to the world uh, that we never see the real debt that we have as God's people and that's to the unsaved world. And we talked about Romans chapter 1 verse 14 and 16 about dealing, preaching, uh, uh, not being ashamed and preaching the gospel to the world and that really is our debt. But yet today we're going to take another concept of that aspect of debt. We're going to take it one step further within the context of the passage here. And uh, uh, this second aspect uh, is, without a doubt, probably uh, the most important thing that you'll ever learn and understand, and that's why it's kind of like a prelude to chapter 14 and 15, and uh, it's about the debt not uh, that we owe to the world, but the debt that we owe to each other. 
And if you look at this passage here, this passage is an incredible thing. You know, the key to successful church is unity. There's no question about that. The oneness of God, the oneness of the mind, the oneness of the heart, the oneness of, of the Word of God, and everybody on the same page as far as ministry is concerned. And this principle deals with the fact that uh, we need to, uh, to, to take that same debt aspect into our relationship with each other. You know, just like our debt to the unsaved world, we'll never get it paid. And the reason why we'll never get it paid is because of Christ's death on the cross and the fact that you and I have experienced the salvation that God wants uh, us to tell others about. And the reason why I, you know, and I know I'm a pastor and I get paid for what I do, but if I didn't get paid for what I do, I'd still do what I could do. Uh, and there were times in my life when I was not a pastor and I did exactly what I do now. Maybe not to the extent because I had to work a job like many of you do. But it was never a time in my life where I wasn't uh, looking to put out the gospel and, and tell somebody about the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason for that is, is because when I got saved, I realized the debt that Christ paid for my soul. I realized, uh, as many childhood uh, Christians never realized, all that God did for me to get to heaven. It was no easy act for God just to snap his fingers and allow people to go to heaven. When I understood the fact that his son came down and died on the cross, shed his blood, when I read places like Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, and, and many places in the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, when I saw the absolute agony that he paid on the price and then fully realized that he did that for me, I fully understood what Paul meant when he said, I'm a debtor to the Greeks and the Gentiles. Because I understand as a debtor uh, to this world, I have a debt now that what God has given me, you know, I need to give to others. Somebody told me one time years ago, and it was such a true statement in my, and I've never forgotten it. He defined what Christians ought to be. And he says, Christi Christians and Christianity, you know, we get our little social levels where everybody wants to have a little pecking order spiritually. And he said simply this, and it's so true. He said, Christianity and Christians are just one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. And boy, that is absolutely one of the truest little statements that, yes, you can put down, down as a ministry principle in your book. And uh, it's, a, it's a great thing. And, you know, but besides that, the context here is the fact that, that we are in debt to each other to love each other. And the reason why we're in debt to love each other is because the Lord loved you and me when we were nothing. The Lord loved you and me when we didn't deserve any love. When we were altogether unlovely, when, we had, when, when God was a, the concept of God as a holy God and we were absolutely the most grotesque, horrible thing in, to God could ever be, when we were most the unlovable person that anything in this world, God still loved us. And because the Lord loved us when we were nothing and deserved no love, that's why Jesus in John chapter 15 verse 12 says, This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. This is why he said in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now these verses are talking about uh, God's children, you and me, loving each other with a concept based on what God has done for us. So he comes down here in verse 9 and he says this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now what he's doing here, and Paul does this a lot in the Bible, that's a quotation from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, I think. And uh, 
Yeah, it is. And uh, in that particular passage, he uses this phrase here, thou shalt love thy neighbor as himself. And what Paul is doing is what he does many, many times. He's taking the Old Testament commandment to teach a New Testament principle to you and to me. You know, we use the term a lot. Uh, You hear me say it a lot, talking about becoming Christ-like. I talk about the fact that the goal of every young Christian is to uh, become more like Christ every day of your life. We talk about being conformed to his image. Uh, but you know what? Um, being Christ-like is not, has really nothing to do with what you say. Being Christ-like even has nothing to do uh, with what you do. But in reality, and this is where the rubber of Christianity meets the pavement, The reality of Christianity and the love that we should have of being Christ-like has nothing to do with what you say or what you do, but in reality has to do everything with how we treat each other. And that is the key. Christ-like is treating other people like Christ takes care of you. It's, It's dealing with people like he deals with you. It's treating people like he treated you. That's what the Bible's definition of Christ-like is. Now, let me explain how this kind of works together for you, and I want you to understand the background of this. I never want you just to grasp the principle without seeing how it works. Now, let me talk to you about understanding the concept of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, if you lay them out, are in two aspects. Some of them deal with God, and they would be called the ceremonial ones. They're the ones that are, are Godward. Then there's other commandments that are what they call the moral commandments, and they're toward man. So your Ten Commandments basically break down in a ceremonial mode and in a, a moral mode. The ceremonial ones being like, thou shalt have no other God before me. The moral ones being like, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, and go down through that. Some are Godward and some are manward. The Old Testament idea of God giving the Ten Commandments. And let me explain this. God never gave the Ten Commandments for man to keep. We get the idea that, you know, the Ten Commandments form the golden rule. And, you know, and so if we live by the Ten Commandments or most of the Ten Commandments or the majority of the Ten Commandments, that that kind of cuts some ice with God. Well, let me, let me bring you back down to reality. First of all, the Ten Commandments were never given for anybody to keep. You know why that is? Because nobody can keep them. In fact, the Bible says, well, I kept, somebody says, well, I kept nine of them, you know, when I just have a problem with the number 10 one or, or one of them in there. Well, the Bible says that if you keep the whole law and you offend it in one point, you're guilty of it all. My point is this. The Ten Commandments were never given for you and me to keep. But at the same time, it's a great moral standard by which we should uh, measure ourselves and our relationship with God and our, and our morals in our life. But in more than that, the Ten Commandments was never given for you and I to keep. God never intended to give them to us to keep. God gave the Ten Commandments so you and I would understand how far we fell short of what God really expected of us. You know what the Bible says in the book of Galatians? The Bible says in the book of Galatians, that chapter uh, 3 verse 24, that the Old Testament law was our schoolmaster that brought us to Christ. Now you've all been in school. We have a host of teachers here. So most of your kids are in school. 
We all grew up in school. We all went through the public school system. You know how it works. You go to a classroom and you have a teacher. The teacher keeps your focus on the subject. If you're in American history class, she keeps the focus on American history. If you're in biology class, they keep the focus on biology. That's what a teacher does. Well, the Holy Spirit of God and the Ten Commandments is our teacher. It is our schoolmaster. And what it keeps us focused on is the fact that you and I, as human beings, as good as you try, as hard as we try, we fall short of what God expects of us. That's what it does. Yet the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 25, it says that now, because of faith, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. When Christ came, he took away the law. And this is what I want you to understand today. I want you to grasp this concept. And the idea is, in the Ten Commandments, that if you kept the ones toward God then you'd keep the ones toward man. See how it works? Now, that is a great reality truth there, and I don't know if, if right now where you're at you can grasp that concept. One of the things that I've learned over the years is that many of the supreme contract, concepts that, that help me out in life and get me through life are, are basically basic ones. And God's idea behind the Ten Commandments, now you know that it was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, to show us our, our condition that we needed to have a Savior, but it also, it also, in its context, this is what God intended. He said to himself, I'll give them ten commandments. By the way, they're not the ten suggestions. They're the ten commandments. I've met some people in my life. I heard a guy say one time he was preaching. He said, if, if God would have known so-and-so, there would have been twelve commandments instead of ten. And that may be true, too. The bottom line is this. God realized that he gave some that are Godward and some that are manward because he understood this. And this is his thinking, and you need to know this. God's thinking on it is this. If you, he couldn't conceive in his mind somebody who would keep the ones toward God but not keep the one toward man. See how that thing works? And truthfully, in Bible Christianity, and I know you have a lot of Christians like this. You, you don't take you long to go to church to figure this out in any church. I've been around it all of my life. Uh, Today, in a lot of ways, is going to be an assessment of the things that I've learned in the last 36-plus years of my life. But it doesn't take you long to go in any churches, and many of you have been in churches in your life where you see this. The bottom line is you can't fake Bible Christianity. You can't say that you love him on one end and then treat each other the way that God's people treat each other. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And what you have here is the fact that the law, now here's the point I'm going to get to. The law was our schoolmaster that brought us to Christ. But it all says says that through faith the law was done away with, that we don't have a schoolmaster anymore. This is why we're not under the Ten Commandments like the nation of Israel was. Now I'm going to tell you again, they're a great moral compass to follow through your life. And, uh, but you don't want to think that if I keep the Ten Commandments, I'm going to heaven. Uh, you won't get to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments because you can't keep them. But here's what you got. Christ on the cross, when he came and died, what he did was, in himself, in his death on the cross, he fulfilled the law. Now, this is the aspect of your salvation. Thursday night, we talked about, you probably, you probably don't know this, but Thursday night, you got... You got 12 of the greatest definitions on New Testament salvation that completely 
thoroughly gives you every aspect of it for you to understand. And in God's salvation of Christ's death on the cross, what he did is he, Christ, fulfilled the law. Us institute people, we're in the book of Hebrews. We know the book of Hebrews is a unique book because what it does is it shows the nation of Israel that everything in the Old Testament was a temporary imperfect structure. And the only perfect structure was what God had in the New Testament through death on the Christ. So everything in he- cross, so everything in everything in Hebrews is based on what the Old Testament couldn't do and what Christ did do when He came and fulfilled the law. So when Christ came and died on the cross, Romans chapter uh, eight verse three uh, says this: For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh but they that are after the spirit the things of the spirit. You see how clear that is? You can't keep the commandments that are toward God and not keep the commandments toward man. You're either in the flesh or you're in the spirit. But you're not got one foot in either way. You either love God and you treat your neighbor as God does. And you love them, uh, each other as God loves them unconditionally. Or you don't. You can't have it both ways. When you get saved, it was Christ who fulfilled the law. And now what does he do? He fulfilled the law and he comes now and he indwells in you and I. And the fact that he has fulfilled the law and he now dwells in you and I, then our lives should be a fulfillment of the law in a spiritual sense, just like it was a fulfillment in the physical sense in the Old Testament. You realize that if you're saved here this morning, you have Christ living inside you? And if Christ is living inside you and he fulfilled the law, then your job as a Christian after he's living inside you is what? Fulfill the law. And what is the law? What he did with the ten is redefine them down to two. And this is why he says in verse 8, look at verse 8. You see, something changed between the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments in a, in a civil form, a written form, than when they come into the New Testament after it was all completed in Christ. Something changed. And now that Christ fulfilled the law and the law is inside you, as Christ is inside you and your life and my life is to fulfill the law, look at verse 8. He that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. You see that? We have a debt to each other as Christians. Yeah, we have a debt to the unsaved world to go out and tell them the story of Christ. That was the aspect we talked about last week. But you and I have a debt to each other and that debt is to love each other as Christ loves you. And then to speak no ill of one another. We'll look at that when we get down here in verse 9. Now let me talk about this law here where he says in verse 8, He that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Now this law in the New Testament is found in Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. Here it's called the law of Christ. Now watch this. Now you don't have to turn to Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. I'll, I'll read it for you. Well, no, turn to it, because you might think I'm lying to you. (laughs) Who said amen over here? (laughs) 
He had fun yesterday, didn't we, Big Jim, huh? Oh, wasn't you? Oh, okay. Maybe I don't want to know. <laughs> we still had fun yesterday, didn't we? Yeah, okay. All right, Galatians chapter 6. Look at verse 1. Now, here's the law of Christ. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Now, watch it. Bear ye one another's burdens, and here it comes, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You see that? Now, that's called the law of Christ in the Bible. That law of Christ supersedes the Old Testament law, the ten, and takes the form that you and I now are to have a debt to each other. And when a man be overtaken in a fault, you that are spiritual, and that would be the key word there, by the way, ye that are spiritual... Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. All right. Now, in James, come over to James chapter 2. Now, here it is. James chapter 2, verse 8. Now, here it's called the royal law. And the royal law and the law of Christ is what Christ changed about the Old Testament law when he fulfilled it. And when he came in you and me, and now he dwells inside of us, we are to be the fulfillment of the law in these two things, just like Christ is. All right, James chapter 2, verse 8. If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, here it comes, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. You see, something changed. And this is what Jesus was making reference to in Matthew chapter uh, uh, 22, verses 37 through 40, when he said this. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, with all of thy soul, and with all of thy mind. Now, you see that? Now, that's the first commandment, isn't it? The first commandment back in Exodus chapter 20 is, Thou shalt have no other God before me. See? That's the first commandment. Now, watch this. Now, watch this. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love the neighbor as thyself. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's not the second one. Somebody raise your hand and tell me what the second commandment is in Exodus chapter 20. William? Have no graven images. So that's not the second commandment. See? The second commandment was, thou shalt have no other God before me, then talk about graven images. But here he says the first commandment is, is, is to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul. And then the second commandment is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Look at verse 40. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You know what he did? God did the same thing with you and me. Now listen to me. This is very, very important what I'm about to say. God did the same thing with you and me that he did with the Old Testament law to the nation of Israel. God looked at the Ten Commandments. Some of them were Godward. Some of them were manward. Some of them were ceremonial. Some of them were moral. God looked at the Ten Commandments and he said to himself, I know they can't keep it, but I'm going to use it to show them how far they fall short. But at the same time, it's a great standard because here's what I want to do. If I, here's how they'll work. If they'll, if they'll love me, and they'll fulfill the things that are Godward, and it's really real. See, that's the key. Then they'll fulfill the things that are manward. And you know what he's saying here? 
He's saying that's what you and I do as Christians who now have Christ living inside us who fulfilled the law. Your true, your true spirituality isn't how much you talk about loving God. Your true spirituality isn't about how much you talk about reading the Bible or how you run around yelling praise the Lord or do everything that you want to do. That's not the mark of a true Christian. Now, we think that's the mark, don't we? And I don't, you know, I, I don't, I'm kind of torn on this. Uh, I, I grew up in churches where people amen when you preach. And uh, if you ever preach in a black church, and I preach many, many times, they'll amen you right off the place, man, and I love it. I mean, I think it's the greatest thing in the world. I mean, you get amen, you get well, you get just about everything that you could want. I mean, it, they fire up. If you can't preach in a black church, you're probably dead. Those people love God and have an exuberance for it. I grew up in churches like that where a guy would really get flying through the thing and, uh, you know, uh, and people would just, guys would amen, people amen, ladies would amen. Sometimes it happens here. Now, but I know we're, we're, you know, time has changed and we're in the Midwest now and I don't know what that has to do with it, but I guess I'm trying to give you an alibi. (laughs) But the bottom line is this. And here's again, I've got so many old things in my pocket that Sabaka taught me over the years. Mel used to, he'd go preach in some place and there's always, you know, there's always, and I don't, Where's Phil? Is Phil in here? Okay, Phil, just take no personal, or John, don't take this personal, because you amen a lot, you know, so I don't want to think I'm, 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 I'm centering you up here or pointing you out, but everybody look around at Phil back there right now. No, I'm just, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You. I'm just kidding, you, all you guys. But, but you've got to say things, because I don't want anybody to think I'm talking about somebody here. I like it, but at the same time in every church, um, you always got, and Mel used to say this, uh, he'd be up there preaching, and some guy down the front would just, and sometimes it can be done very appropriate like it is here, but you've been in churches where, I mean, they just are very inappropriate with it. I mean, they'll amen, scream, and yell, and you can't get anything said. And old Mel used to say, thank you, brother, but don't amen it louder than you live it. And that's a true statement. That's a true statement. That's a true statement. Now, what God did was he took all of the Ten Commandments and he redefined them into two. One that is Godward and one that is manward. And then he put them in his son. And when you and I get saved, now we also have those two areas in our life because Christ is in us and they be redefined in him. And those are the, that's, the, that's the law of Christ and the royal law. And that is the law that all the other Ten Commandments go to. And they are the character qualities of Christ. And therefore, when we become Christ-like in the real deal, we follow the same format. You can't fake Bible Christianity. And I'll tell you what, you just simply can't. And it's one of those things that uh, uh, it's, the, the, the thing is so clear. God looked at us and he said, you know what, I'm going to take all of those ten, and they don't need ten because they got their faith and they're under grace, so I'm going to boil them down into two. I'm going to take all of the ones to God, and I'm going to make those all in one. And then I'm going to take all the ones to man, and I'm going to make them down to one. And then I'm going to put him in my son, and that's going to be the royal law, the law of Christ, because he fulfilled it. And then when my people in the church age get saved, that's the two laws they're going to operate under, and that is the two laws is the proof, if they're really who they say they are in Christ. Now, here's his thinking, see? The idea is if you love God, you do what's right with people. So he's saying here, he combines it into two, if you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself, look at verse 9, if you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself, then you won't commit adultery, verse 9, against them. 
You won't kill them, verse 9. You won't steal from them, verse uh, uh, 9. You won't bear false witness against them. And you won't covet what they have. See how it works? Now look at verse 10. And this is a great principle. In fact, I dare to say that this verse here defines what really biblical love is. If you want a definition, and I know sometimes we use John 3.16, for God so loved the world, you know, I guess that would be a good one for the Godward side. But you want a defining verse for a child of God in, in you and me, in our relationship with each other? It's found in verse 10. And verse 10 simply says this, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. See that thing? Working no ill toward someone, another Christian. We hear a lot today about love in action. You know, that's a big word today. Love in action. You know, the truth of the matter is, the greatest verse in the Bible that defines love in action is 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, as far as I'm concerned. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, any man love God, the same is known of him. Now, analyze that verse. You say, well, you know people love God because they sing loud when you sing. Well, you people love God because they have wide-margin Bibles. You can't love God without wide-margin Bibles. You, two things. You can't love God without a wide-margin Bible. You can't go to heaven without a red pencil, so you better get one. <laughs> we look at that. We look at all the outward things that people do. But, of course, the bottom line is that's not based on the principle here. We now understand in this great chapter that's not the defining factor of whether you love God or not. When it says, if any man love God, the saint had known of him, it's based on the concept that both commandments, or or the Ten Commandments have been defined down into two. They're in Christ, and then they're in you. And God cannot conceive of us really, honestly, loving him, and then showing ill towards your fellow Christian. Boy, that makes life real simple, doesn't it? You see, true Christian love is based on our identifying with the two character qualities of Christ in these two areas. And, of course, that's just what it is, loving the same thing that he did, loving the unlovable and forgiving the unforgivable. That's God. And God expects those same two things in our life. Those same two things in our life. You know, I talked last week about everybody makes mistakes, and we all do. I heard a great quote this week. A great quote went like this. Without mistakes, there'd be no forgiveness. And without forgiveness, there'd be no love. And boy, if that isn't true of God's concept for you and me. And that's why I tell you, and I tell you over and over and over again. Because people come in here with some areas in their life that, uh, that are some tough areas. That is a situation where, you know, uh, I've told you many, many times. I'm not care where you've come from. I don't care what you've done. I don't care uh, what situation you've found yourself in. As long as you want to do what's right and you're willing to do what you've got to do to change that, who in the world am I to hold you back from what God wants to do in your life based on the law of Christ and the royal law? It doesn't take long, if, like I said, to see how this thing does not work in most churches. And you're going to find that in most churches, and I found this to be true all my life, I, 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 I start putting my message together on Monday morning, you know, and I'll get a rough draft on Monday. 
and uh, I like to, and I do things weird, you know, and not everybody does it. I, I, I'll, get a, I'll get a concept about, I'll look, before I go to bed Sunday night, I'll read the next chapter I want or next part I want to go through, and I'll just simmer that all night long. I'll read it again in the morning before I go to the fitness center, and then I'll go to the fitness center, and while I'm working out and doing my thing, that thing begins to take some kind of form and shape of where I want to go and what I want to do. I'll come back from that, and I'll sit down for the next three or four hours, and I'll basically put out an outline of where I want to go and what I want to do. And then as a week goes on, I'll redefine it, reshape it, read it Wednesday or Thursday. It's in its basic final form. That gives me a chance to think things through, so to speak. It gives me a chance to reflect on things, you know, that, that when I talk about things, I don't just like to be an academic person. I like to give you personal things that I've learned because I think that's so vital. And, I, and it doesn't take long to see this in, in churches. And many of you have come from churches where you were used and abused, so to speak. And you come to the place where uh, you realize, and I've heard testimonies in the last three or four weeks of uh, people that I've talked to that's come over uh, and talked to me. Uh, and I think that it would be safe to say for most of us who, uh, you know, most of God's people, not all of them, and maybe not most of them. Maybe that's a bad choice of words. But you're going to find that a lot of God's people lead double lives. I found, uh, 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 all through my life, I found that scenario. They have a set of rules for themselves, and then they have a set of rules for everybody else. When I think of modern-day Christianity, and again, not everybody, but enough over the years that I've seen that there's some things that I've just never really understood. Now, I guess I'm going to talk to you today in just a few moments about, and this is probably a shock to most of you, uh, and it shouldn't be because I certainly never have portrayed myself to knowing everything about the Bible and don't pretend to in any way, shape, or form. But most of the time when you ask me a question about the Bible, I have the answer to it. Now, I realize that most of you think that's because I'm so smart, but that's really not true. The Bible says, confess your faults one to another. Here's another one of mine. I did two last week. I'll do two more. This is all you're getting, though. In 35 years, I've probably been asked the same question 100,000 times. I don't think I've had a new question asked me about the Bible in the last six years of my life. So after a while, it seems like, wow, how did he know that? Because you're the 9,446th person that asked me that. That's how I know that. Now, that takes away from my demeanor now, and now you won't think I was as smart as I think I am. But it has nothing to do with smarts. If it has to do with smarts, I'm definitely in trouble. But it does have to do with the fact that uh, the principles in the Word of God are so clear, and they show us that this is exactly what we, we do. We have a set of rules for ourselves, and we have a set of rules for everybody else. I think the greatest verse that defines God's people uh, is found in Isaiah chapter 29. Now, this is one of these little verses that's really tucked away. I've got about 40 of them in the front of my Bible. I've never given them out to anybody. But they are, if I ever need to get into a jam where I have to preach something and I want it to be a blockbuster that'll just, these are the 40 verses. I mean, these things absolutely are one-liner atom bombs. You know, there's some verses in the Bible that they're they're really good. Some of them are good, but then there's some that just will drop you like an H-bomb right on top of your head. I call them reality verses, and I got about 40 of them. I don't have them there so much to preach as I have them there to read them about every day or every week for my own self. But here's what he says, and this is so true. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. Now watch this. 
Wherefore the Lord said, for as much as this people, talking about the nation of Israel, and this is us, this is us right here. Israel couldn't get it with the Ten Commandments. They couldn't keep the ones toward God, so therefore they wound up doing everything against their neighbor. And the two of them are condensed down to two for you and me, and we can't do it either. Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw nigh to me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Now in the world today, we call this lip service, don't we? We tell somebody what they want to hear, but then we do something else. And that was the state of the nation of Israel right there in Isaiah. And, of course, Isaiah is talking about right before the judgment of Shennacherib comes down and destroys Jerusalem. But that was the state of the nation of Israel for the most part in, what, 587 B.C.? And it's also the state of Bible Christianity today in the most part because uh, uh, we talk about how much we love God on one hand and then we destroy our neighbor with the same lips that just talked about how much we love God, don't we? See how it works? You see... We say, oh, I love God, but we don't fulfill the other side of it. And the truth of the matter is, if you don't fulfill the one, you really can't fulfill the other. And that is what it means to be Christ-like. It's absolutely incredible to me. I mean, uh, it is has. And based on our debt to God, and, and I understand that this all comes through a process. You know what? I can't expect anybody, when you first come in here, to begin to just have a handle on all of this. This is part of the growth process that... Uh, comes through your life that you begin to put these principles in these two areas in your life and you learn how to do it. But it's always based on your debt to God for him forgiving us when we were unforgivable and loving us when we were unlovable. And that forms the basis for the debt that I have and the debt that you have for loving each other and not showing ill toward each other. And that's simply where it's at. It's incredible. Incredible. You know, in Proverbs chapter 6, and I, uh, to me, I, I, like the, I like the conceptual studies in the Bible. In Proverbs chapter 6, you have a great passage here. And in Proverbs chapter 6, in verse 16, the Bible says there's six things that the Lord hates. Now, for you new Bible students, I just want to draw your attention to Proverbs chapter 6. And then you find it in verse 16. And then you find there's six things. Now, it doesn't take much of a math person to figure out that six, six, six. What we got in Proverbs chapter 6, I'll just make it real easy for you. What we got in Proverbs chapter 6 is the character makeup of the devil. That's what we have. And if you read down through here, it talks about the six things that God hates. And yet it tops it off with number seven. And it tells you that there's six things that God hates, but then it tells you there's a seventh thing that forms the abomination of all the rest of them. And these are the seven character qualities of the devil. I want you to, if you don't have these in your Bible, I want you to put them in your Bible, maybe not right now today, but get this down, get the tape, and then go back and put this thing into context for you, and you'll want to use this. You hear me talk all the time, and I say this about learning how to use your Bible. I'm not talking about just finding what order the books of the Bible go in. I'm not talking about how to get in your map section in the back and find where they cross the Red Sea. That's not, I mean, that's important, but that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is coming to the place that you know how to use these things in your Bible that give you the insight that you don't make bad choices in your life or bad choices of association in your life. 
Now, in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6 and 7, here's what it says. These are the six things that God hates, and the seventh that is an abomination. Mark it again, 666. The first one is a proud look. The second one is a lying tongue. The third one is hands that shed innocent blood. The fourth one is a heart that devises wicked imaginations. The fifth one is that feet swift running to mischief. The sixth one is a false witness. And the seventh one is that makes the abomination showing discord among the brethren. Now, I don't know what you know about the Bible. I'm going to give you something right now that's worth $100 billion. You got $100 billion today, Roy? Take a check. Would you take a check? Yeah. yeah. Will we take a check? We'll take a check. Yeah, we'll take a check. No. I'm going to give you something that's worth $100 billion. And this is not part of the sermon today, but since we're here, let's get it out of the way so at least you'll have it. This is worth $100 billion. I told you that this is the character, concept, makeup of the devil. There are seven things here. These seven things will match up to seven periods in the history of man and the history of the Bible. It's incredible. These seven things will show you the history of the Bible running right down through the whole aspect of the Bible. Let's see if it works. And boy, it does work. All right? The first thing is a proud look. Somebody help me with that. Where will we go in the Bible where we find the first concept of pride? Anybody want to raise your hand and tell me? Rebecca? Genesis 1-1, Ezekiel chapter 28, and Isaiah chapter 14. Remember when the devil, who was not the devil, his name was Lucifer, and he got kicked out of heaven? What was the reason why he got kicked out of heaven? What happened in his world that caused him to do what he did? Somebody raise your hand and tell me. What was it? All right, but define it in the word. What is it? Pride. Okay. The Bible says his heart was lifted up and he said, I will be like the most high God. Pride. There's your first mark. Now you come on through your Bible a little way and you know what you got? You got a lying tongue is the next one. Somebody put that into context for me. Raise you. Oh, yes. I haven't heard from you yet. You got your prison uniform on today. Good to see you. <laughs> Adam and Eve. And what did he say, honey, with Adam and Eve? Yeah, what, but how did you remember how he said it exactly? It's okay if you don't. You hit it right. You got the bullseye. You know what he said? Lying tongue. And she's right on right. In Genesis chapter 3, the devil came to, Adam, to Eve. And what did he say with a lying tongue? He said, go ahead, real loud, like you're preaching it. Yea, hath God said. That's right. Somebody helped you with your sermon over here. I wasn't sure who it was. Yea, hath God said, and then he lied about what God said. There's your lying tongue. See that thing? Only gets better or worse. The next one, hands that shed innocent blood. Ah, who wants to help me with that one? Raise your hand now. Raise your hand. Let's go. This, I got two oldies back here. See, before they get Alzheimer's, if they can remember. Let's see. Which one do I want? How old are you, John? 58. How old are you, Jimmy? He's older than me. He's older than me. <laughs> But that was a cheap shot. Go ahead, John. Cain and Abel. See? See that thing? Cain and Abel. We're walking right through the Bible. When it talks about uh, uh, hands that shed innocent blood, that's exactly what happened. Cain 
took his brother and killed him. Now, I don't know if you picked it up yet or not coming through these things, but every one of these deal with a specific part of the Bible that is key. The fall in Genesis 1-1 with a proud look, that's key. Adam and Eve being deceived in the fall, that's pretty key. Cain killing Abel, that's pretty key. Now look at the next one. Heart that devises wicked imaginations. All right, now where's that one fit? Raise your hand and tell me. John, where would that be? Genesis chapter 6, where the Bible says in Noah's day that all the imagination of man was to do evil continually. Remember that? But it doesn't just stop with Genesis chapter 6, John. That's a very good place to start, and you got the one reward. I'd give you this trophy, but the little kid will cry. <laughs> the bottom line is this. It goes all the way up to the Tower of Babel. See that thing? So that brings us up to the beginning and the start of the nation of Israel with a heart that devises wicked imaginations. All right, the next one is feet swept running to mischief. Somebody bring me up to that one. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Oh, did Sandy, you have your hand up? Or you just... Very good. Did Stephanie tell you that one answered? No, no. Running to Baal. That's exactly right. See, I gave you Keel. I talked about coming up to the beginning of the nation of Israel. Remember that? After the Tower of Babel, we had Abraham. The Tower of Babel is in chapter 10, and Abraham shows up in chapter 11. The nation of Israel goes on from there. But the nation of Israel begins with Abraham and comes through his loins and down the line. By the time we get into First and Second Kings, you know what Israel does? Who's got the kingdom of heaven, everything that God's supposed to do? They do exactly what she just said. They have feet that run or swift running to mischief, and they keep going after Baal. Ah, number six. Raise your hand now. Don't you cheat on me. Oh, you know what, Sandy? I bet you I gave those on Monday over there, didn't I? Did I? Oh, a long time ago. All right. You're not as smart as I thought you was. You just take good notes, honey. That's all I can tell you. All right, the next one is false witness. Where does that come in? Raise your hand. What's that one? Oh, now I got them stumped. Hold on, Roy. Oh, hang on. Marion, I'll give you a shot. What? Yes, the crucifixion. Remember they took false witness against him? False witness against him. Now, I told you that this is the character makeup of the devil laid out for you in a systematic study of the Bible that shows you every major event that formulated the historical aspect of the Bible and shows you that basically the devil's in operation through all through this time. Specifically breaking it down so you could follow it with the six things. And these six things, now I say it again, are the things that God hate. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet swift running to mischief, false witness, and then the seventh thing is simply this, sowing discord among the brethren. That is the last and final one. That is the capstone of the six that makes it an abomination before God. All right, who wants to raise their hand and tell me what that fits into? Yes, ma'am. Huh? Nope. 
Nope. She said Zechariah chapter 11, but I know she's not going where it needs to go with it. What is it? So maybe, maybe it's right. Maybe I missed it. What's Zechariah 11? Huh? Now, why would we do that? Why? Why, why would we do that? I, that's, a, that's a marvelous thing. Why would all of these fit right up through the thing and come to the crucifixion? And then when we got the seventh at the abomination, we'll skip right over to church age and put it in the tribulation period. The seventh of the abomination of sowing discord is the problem the church age has. And that's why it's the seventh, because it ends with a rapture of the church, and it's over as far as that point is concerned. You got the six personalities of the devil that work it right up through that thing, and the last one is a false witness of the crucifixion of Christ, and the predominant problem that the devil puts into the next fusion of God's plan, which is the church age, makes the abomination, and it's sowing discord among the brethren. The failure of you and me to take the Godward ones and take those same ones to the manward ones. We give him lip service with our mouth, but our hearts are far from him. And boy, I'll tell you what. That is worth $100 billion in gold bullion. But we're not done quite just yet. I love comparison studies. We haven't got here yet. But just as you have the seven things that God hates that are the personality of the devil, when we get into Romans chapter 15... You have the seven quality traits of Christ that should be in you and me that balances out the seven. Now, you want to learn how to use your Bible? Real simple. Bible study 101. Put both of these down. I haven't given you the seven yet. Put all these down on two papers, and everybody you meet the rest of your life, judge them off of those two. Just that simple. Every Christian, every person, everybody who comes to you and talks about how much they love God or this or that, it doesn't matter. Whoever they are, judge them off of those things. They're either going to have the characteristics of God toward each other, which I'm going to give you, or they're going to have the characteristics of, you find in Proverbs chapter 6, 6, 6. You know, we think that the fact that because we're saved and on our way to heaven that the devil can't really have an influence in our life. You need to go back and read the book of Matthew where Jesus said to Simon Peter, get behind me, Satan. He was talking to Peter who was trying to get him to not go to the cross. And when you find these seven things in a person's life or one of them or two of them, you know what you're dealing with? I'll tell you what you're not dealing with. You're not dealing with the character of God. Now, let's look at these seven things that a Christian has. You know what? I didn't write the verses down for these, so I'll have to just give them to you, and then we can get them Thursday night. We still hear Thursday night. <laughs> All right. The, uh, it says the first one is proud look. The first one, and over there in uh, Romans chapter 15, is the job of a Christian is he edifies other Christians. Do everything that comes out of your mouth edify other Christians? You know what my mama used to say? My mama was smart. Your mama probably said it too. You can't say anything nice about somebody, then don't say anything. 
Christians need to edify each other. Why? Because we have a debt to love each other. Not a debt of lip service, a debt of love and action. Oh, I love that. Love and action. We may share some things today before we leave. I'm into this ecumenical movement. Proud look. Yet the Bible says the child of God edifies people. Lying tongue. Proverbs, or Romans chapter 15 says he helps other people. Proverbs says hands that shed, that shed innocent blood. And you know, your hands is what you do things with in the Bible. You hurt people with your hands. But yet the Bible says in Romans chapter 15 that you please people by what you do. The Bible says in Proverbs, the heart that devises wicked imaginations. And yet the Bible says in Romans chapter 15 that your job and my job is to receive people. You ever been to a church when you go in that it's really cold? You ever been to the ch- a church someplace where you go in there and you feel like you're in the first church of the refrigerator? <laughs> Nobody talks to you, everybody's cold, everybody's indifferent. One of the things I love about so many of you is the fact that in this church, when somebody comes in, you like you act like you've known them all your life. Uh, it's a thing where, uh, you know, you just, uh, you know, uh, I've seen, I, I, honestly, and this is not a criticism in any way, shape, or form, I've stood back in the back and seen some of you ladies, when you saw a visitor, that you went up and you just give them a big old bear hug, and they're, you're giving them a big hug, you're glad to see them, and their head is over your shoulder, and I'm behind you, and I'm seeing them going. <laughs> it's Okay. He receives people. Proverbs 6 says, feet swift running to mischief. Boy, that's so true. And the one in Romans chapter 15, it says he prays for people. You see, how can you sow discord and feet running to mischief and still pray for people that are your brethren? Does that compute to you? That, to me, that's like putting a, uh, that's like putting a, uh, a 110 and a 270 uh, socket. It just, it, it, it's going to get a lot of flash. False witness. Bible says in Romans 15 that we minister to other people. And in the seventh one, abomination is sowing discord among the brethren. The Bible says in Romans chapter 15 that we admonish one another. You know what admonish means? Well, I'll tell you what it don't mean. It don't mean speaking ill of your neighbor. It doesn't mean taking somebody and trashing them because of the fact that whatever issue you have. And it's an incredible concept. And that's why the Bible says, if any man love God, the same is known of him. Because it's the concept that you can't love God and do Godward without doing the manward. And when you see nobody doing the manward, don't get fooled. Use this. This is using your Bible one-on-one. Don't get fooled when you see somebody doing something that's ill to their neighbor, no matter what it may be. Don't get fooled in the trap that they got the Godward one down. Now, things like that and messages like this is why this church will never run 500. All right, Phil, knock it off. Don't, 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 don't shout it louder than you live it. I'll tell you something else, and I've never understood this. I've seen this all my life. You know, I've had some great preaching experiences in my life. I preach just about on, on every, every continent. That's why I love South Africa so much. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. 
we stayed one night, uh, I don't even remember where it was, but we stayed in a place where, you probably know these places, where you drive in at night and they lock you in at night and you stay in. It's a big resort place, but you're right in the middle of, of everything. You hear the lions growling at night while you're sleeping, man. You get up in the morning and there's crocodiles down in the river, but you're locked in, thank God. You're locked into the thing, man. But I, I love it, man. South Africa was my favorite place. But I've had the ability, God given me some great places to preach in my life. And I've really enjoyed my preaching in the States. I don't go anymore, don't do much anymore, simply because this is my job here now. And I've had my fill of the world of going and preaching and doing things. And I don't really have any desire. I got enough of you guys that can handle that. And uh, I, I would go very few places now that I wouldn't take some one or two of you with me to let you preach too. That's like Joplin, you know. I'm not interested in going down and just preaching anymore. I've had my fun in the sun, you know, and all of that stuff. And so, but I, you know what? All my life I've seen this. And, I, and these are the things that I don't understand. I mean, I'm the guy who can ask any Bible question you want to ask to. And, you know, I can probably give you an answer because I heard it before. But there's some things about life in the Bible that I've never figured out. And, I, and yet I probably do figure them out. Maybe I don't want to come to the conclusion, but I, it's, it's hard for me to understand. You know, I'd go places to preach, and I, all of my life, I'd go places to preach, and usually when you preach, you start on a Sunday night, and you go Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and you finish up on Wednesday, and then you fly back wherever you're going back on, on, uh, on Thursday morning. And I'd, I'd go out to preach someplace, you know, and about the third or fourth night, a couple of deacons would come over to me, or uh, sometimes a family, or sometimes uh, an individual, it didn't matter. they pull me aside, and they start to tell me uh, all the things they don't like about the church and the pastor. I think, I've talked to other pastors, and it all happens to everybody. You go in there, and you know, you start preaching, and somebody starts, you know, coming to the point where they really like what you're saying, and they feel like the, the people they're having a problem with, or the pastor's not hearing what you're saying, so they'll pull you aside. I've even had some of them say, you know what, you need to preach on this. I mean, I mean, I've, all my life I've done that. I've seen that. And here's what I always say. I mean, first of all, I'm the wrong guy to say that to. I'm just telling you right out of the chute. I mean, you're the, I'm, the, you're the wrong, I'm the wrong guy to come and try to put me in a confederacy with you against a leadership position in the church. I am the wrong guy. Now, maybe it works for you, but boy, I go to a church someplace and I'm preaching, and, um, you know, somebody's deacon comes over to me or somebody comes over to me, and, uh, I mean, I always have my standard answers. I, one of the things I'll say is this. I'll say, well, you know, and I've had one lady and her husband, you know, they wanted to take me out afterwards and for some deed, you know, and I thought, oh, that'll be nice. They look like a nice couple. Whew, was I wrong? <laughs> I never wanted to go back to a, a dirty hotel room so bad in all my life. I mean, it went on and on and on and on. And finally, I, I said to him, I said, you know what? I don't know what to tell you. First of all, this is not my problem. I said, but let me ask you a question. If all this is true about the pastor or the people in the church, and everything is as bad as you say it is, why do you stay there? I mean, do you like abuse? I mean, if, if it's true, I mean, you know what? Everybody has a right to be happy. Why would you stay in a place that you, makes you miserable every time you go? I've never understood that. And I tell him, I said, you know what? You have a right to be happy and you have a right to have issues. There's nothing wrong with that. But the bottom line is simply this, man. Hey, look, if, if this place is, if this church and, you know, if this pastor is as goofy as you say he is, if he's the way you say he is and everything is the way it is, and why would you stay here? Find you a church that you can be happy in. Find you a church that meets all of your needs. There's nothing wrong with that. 
You have every right to be happy. I mean, no church is for everybody. Find one that you can be happy in. I mean, it's so clear in the Bible, at least I thought it was. I tell them, look, the Bible says, do you have an issue with your pastor? Do you have an issue with somebody in that church? What does the Bible say? I have never not been told the right answer. Just nobody ever does it. I don't, I, I've never understood it all of my life. I've seen it every place I go. Every place I go. They have issues with a, some person or the pastor or the brethren. But, if, you know, I'd say, you know, if you, if you, if you can't or, or you won't do what you need to do, I mean, then go find a church that you're happy in. What's so hard about that? You know what? That, they just look at me. You know what one guy said? He said, well, because this is the best church I've ever been in. What? <laughs> I, I don't understand that. Then I'd say this. Based on the Bible, why are you telling me this? I'm just Bob Alexander from Kansas City. I can't fix your issue. Why don't you go to the person who can fix your issue? I mean, isn't that what the Bible says to do? Why are you coming to me? I came up here to preach, have a good time, fellowship, get a little break from what I do, and enjoy the people. Why are you involving me in something that is none of my business and I can't fix? I said, go to them. I said, I know your pastor. Sit down with him. I'll go with you. I'm here for the next couple of days. I'll sit down with you. I'll help you work it out. If it's some other person, just sit down. Open up in prayer. Get on your knees together and deal with it. Deacon said to me one time, he said, well, he got me about, this was up in uh, Chicopee, Massachusetts. And uh, they later split that church and that pastor went down to someplace in Columbus. But he came across, I don't know if it was over this issue or not, uh, but he came over to me and he said, uh, I talked to you, brother. And when I always get nervous when they say that, like that. When I talk to you, brother, I say, yeah, sure, what do you want to talk about? He said, well, I don't like the way the direction of the church is going. And I guess he stayed waiting for me to say, well, gee, I said, well, wow. Well, yeah, let's pass out guns and burn the place down. <laughs> he said, well, I don't like the way the direction of the church is going. I said, well, that's not your call. The deacons don't have the vision of the church. That's the pastor's job. I don't know any player in the New Testament where the deacons had any vision at all except waiting on tables and doing what needed to be done. That's not your call. God doesn't give the deacons the vision. He gives that to the pastor. You know what my answer was to him? Look, you look like a nice guy. If you don't like the way he's running it, why don't you go start your own church? I said, be honest about it. Go up in front of the congregation and say, I don't like the way the pastor's doing it. Talk to the pastor. I don't like the way you're doing it. I'm going to go out and start my own work. And, you know, if the pastor's got any guts at all, he'll say, wow, you know, nine gates. Whoa, we got a dung gate. Yeah, thank you. I said, why don't you go out and start your own church? You know what he said? He said, well, I tried that preacher one time and it didn't work out. I said, you mean it flopped? Oh, oh, I said, baby, that's good. That's real good. You can't even build one yourself, but now you want to tell the guy who is building one how to build it? Oh, that'll fly. You should get on a plane with Amelia Earhart. You could have made good buddies on that thing. Now, that's why I don't get invited back many places when I preach. I don't care. 
That Bible says that I'm to love Godward and I'm to love you. I have a debt to the things of God and I have a debt to love you. And that does not allow somebody coming in and canceling out that debt based on what he did for me. Keep them accountable. But you know what? I'm going to tell you the truth. I'd go back next year and the same people with the same issues. They never did what was clear in the Bible that they were supposed to do. And it just kept festering year after year. And God only knows where it all wound up. I have no idea. You know, I was always led. And this is what's tough for me. And I, this is what I don't understand. And this is what's tough for me. And to me, when I see these things down through my life, and, and, and probably some of you, Roy, you probably saw it. You pastored enough years to see it. When, 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 when I see these things, I try so hard to try to balance them out and figure them out and rationalize them out. But at the end of the day, I'm only left after 36 years of seeing this stuff. I'm only left with one conclusion. And it's not a very pretty conclusion. And I don't even like to think about it. You know, you've got somebody's situation like that that doesn't like the way it's run, doesn't like the pastor, doesn't like this, doesn't like that, doesn't like the way it goes, and they continually stay in that and complain about it. When they have an option to go every place else and find something else to make them happy, and they stay, and it continues, and it continues year after year after year. I went to one church six years, and at the end of six years, I didn't go back anymore, and at the end of six years, that same deacon and his family were still mad about the same things they were mad six years ago. I come to the conclusion, you know what? You don't want to do what's right. You want to stay in a situation and pretend you're spiritual with lip service to God, but your heart's far from him, and you want to spend your time in that church undoing what the man of God has been called to do. That's a terrible conclusion. But in those scenarios, that's what I'm left with. That's what I'm left with. I look at Mark Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, where there's Peter that's trying to keep the Lord from going to the cross. And it wasn't Peter. It was Satan using Peter. And the Lord says, Peter, he says, get behind thee, Satan. You know why? Because Satan was using Peter to destroy the work that God wanted to. I've seen it all my life. Now to me, folks, it's real clear. We have a debt. We have a debt to the unsaved world. We have a debt to each other. And that debt is to love each other. And that debt is to love each other based on God's love for us. There's an infallible system given throughout the Bible to deal with any issue that ever comes up in any church. It's the lack of fulfilling the Godward one and the manward one that break that thing down. A true child of God will be just like the summation of God and Christ He'll fulfill the law in two aspects. The Old Testament law is summed up in two. When the New Testament comes into effect, Christ is summed up into the same two. When he comes down, the law of law and the law of Christ, and you and I as a Christian, you and me, can be summed up in the same thing. thing. You love God and you love each other. As yourself. You see? Not two sets of rules. The same rules you have for yourself are the same rules you have for somebody else. And the Bible says, if any man love God, the same is known of him. You see, it's this ending of Romans chapter 13, as I said earlier when we started, that forms the bridge to get you prepared for the two great chapters in the Bible on our relationship with each other. 
And now what we're going to do is next week we'll take these things and we'll bring it uh, right on farther and uh, we'll deal with these things. Uh, the as- second aspect of it that brings you right into Romans chapter uh, 12 and Romans, uh, 13 and 14. Every head bowed and every eye closed.